Today we're going to talk about something that everybody experiences in life. Doesn't matter the neighborhood you grew up in, doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor. Uh, this is something that uh, it, it is unique to the human experience and the part of us that is made in the image of God. Uh, it's something that usually hits our life unexpectedly, and it lasts for quite some time after it begins. The experience we're going to talk about today is grief. I want to welcome everybody here in Chula Vista in the auditorium, everybody watching outside, everybody uh, at home or wherever you are uh, watching online. Uh, each week of this Good Life series, uh, what we're doing is we're working our way through Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the beginning of the book of Matthew. Um, and in the very beginning, Jesus gives this list of what is called uh, the Beatitudes, and that simply is the Latin word uh, for, for blessed. It means happy. And so Jesus gives this list that when you hear it, when you see it, we're going to read through the entire list again. Um, it is something that is very counterintuitive. It's very upside down to the way of our world and the way that our world would say, hey, this is how you're blessed. This is how you're happy. This is how you experience the good life. And Jesus gives these values. Jesus gives these, these, these ways of living that are just upside down to the values and the ways of our world. And so let's read through the entire list. What we're doing each week of the series for the summer is we're going through one of these lists. And so here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, uh, the Beatitudes. Here's how it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We're going to have to go way faster on my monitor back there. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so there Jesus gives this very upside down value system, this countercultural way of living that leads to the good life. And the first one we looked at last week is blessed you are, how blessed you are when you are poor in spirit. And that just doesn't sound right. And Pastor Hosanna did a great job last week teaching us that the poor in spirit means those who know they're not good enough and those who know they're not religious enough for God. And it is in that moment where we realize we are not enough that we actually find God and we can receive God. And so this week actually leads right into um, or comes back from where we left off last week. Because when we're spiritual beggars and we realize that we really have nothing to offer God and we are in need of God, it causes us to mourn 
our own brokenness and the brokenness that we experience in our world. And so this week, we're going to sit on this phrase where Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This first kind, uh, first overarching idea that I want to give you today, uh, before we kind of jump into a list of, of how we're comforted by God, I want to give you an overarching idea because I think in some Christian groups and circles, um, unfortunately, there's gotten to be a little weirdness. And maybe you've heard this before or picked up on it. And so I just want to bring some correction to it. And so let me give you this first overarching idea. And that is simply this. God doesn't expect me to be happy all the time. If you're taking notes today on your app or maybe you're at home watching and you're taking notes, pen and paper, however you're doing that, you need to understand that God doesn't expect me to be happy all the time. Somehow this weird, wrong idea of happiness and joy has worked its way into some Christian groups and circles over the years. And it's this idea that if you're a Christian, then somehow everything should always go your way. And you should always be happy. You should always be joyful. You should never speak a negative thing or never acknowledge any like negative thing because you're giving it kind of a plate. You should always be positive and you should always be happy. And let me just tell you, friends, that is not biblical Christianity. That is like rainbow bright or my little pony land. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not what scripture teaches. God doesn't expect you to be happy all the time. He doesn't expect you to fake it when brokenness hits your life or hard things happen. Look at what scripture says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's, here's what it reads. It says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Here's what scripture is saying. Scripture is making it abundantly clear that sometimes weeping is appropriate, sometimes mourning is the only natural response to the brokenness and the injustice that exists in this world that is not yet redeemed. And when that happens, when we're grieving, when we're mourning a loss, when we're weeping, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you or it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong and it doesn't mean that he's not with you. Our world is broken. Sin and death are still present with us on this earth. I think we would all attest to the reality that there is a lot of pain on this planet. There's a lot of injustice in our world. Jesus has not come back yet again to redeem and restore all things. And until he does, here's what that means. We live in this in-between time where he came the first time to redeem and restore humanity. And we are waiting till he comes again to redeem and restore all things. And until he does, we still live with sin, we still live with brokenness, and we still live with death here. And some of you might be in one of those seasons right now where you're experiencing pain and grief and loss Maybe it's been the loss of a business during this last year and a half that it ravaged your industry or you had to close your business or maybe you lost your job because your industry had to downsize or shut down for a while. Maybe it's just grieving the losses of experiences 
that so many of us had. Or that, you know, we, we celebrated students. Like maybe it's a that student grieving the losses of things that they had hoped for and worked towards. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship recently. Maybe it's a divorce. I know many people in our church over this last year and a half that have lost a loved one, that have lost a spouse, that have lost a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a friend. Losses are real. Grief is real. Brokenness is part of this life. And we don't have to hide it, and we don't have to have to fake it. And Jesus comes along in a world full of brokenness 2,000 years ago, and we live in a world of brokenness today, and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So how does God bless and comfort broken hearts? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to give you some tangible ways from Scripture of how God comforts, comforts us in our losses, in our grieving, in those seasons and moments of life where our hearts are broken. How does God do that? I want to invite you to take some notes today. Go ahead and write these down. Here's the first one. How does God comfort broken hearts? Well, first is this. God brings us close to himself. God brings us close to himself. We do not have a God that is distant and aloof and far away. In fact, Scripture teaches the exact opposite. That in our pain and in our hurting, God actually steps into those moments. Let's read what it says in Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, 18, if we can bring that up on the screen. Let's all read this out loud together. Could we do that? Ready? Begin. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those whose spirits have been crushed. God is not distant. He is not far away. He's not waiting for you to kind of suck it up and get it all together. Then you can come to him. No, he meets us in those broken moments. Even though we feel in our grief sometimes that God is a million miles away, the truth is he's never been closer. And what we have to learn how to do as mature adults and as Jesus people is to remember that oftentimes what we feel is not real. Have you learned that yet? That, that oftentimes our feelings lie to us. Our perception is clouded. Uh, when my kids were really little, we had Disneyland passes for several years and would uh, go up there once in a while. And uh, my daughter, who's our oldest, who's now... Uh, 16, she's going to love me telling this story. Uh, when she was little, she had a massive fear of any character at Disneyland that had like a fake head or face. If it was a character that had like their regular face, even if it was painted, as long as it was like a regular person face, she was good. So like the princesses, totally fine. Princes, totally fine. Peter Pan, Dude in a little green leotard, you know, little hat. Totally fine. But any character, Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, it didn't matter who it was. If it had a fake head on, she would freak out. And I remember this one time we were waiting in line to get on the carousel uh, right there. And you have the Peter Pan ride and, and all those kind of right around there. And all of a sudden I noticed that Captain Hook was coming our way. And then, if you know, there's what Captain, I don't know why a child would be scared of that, <laughs> right? I mean, so welcoming. And like, so Captain Hook comes walking our way. 
And I saw when my daughter saw him. And she was, you know, we were in line and she was just roaming around. But then all of a sudden when she saw Captain Hook, she froze and I saw her looking for a lane to run. And in that moment, I just reached out, put my hand on her shoulder and pulled her close. She's about this high. She's probably four years old. Pulled her close to dad and then she grabbed onto my leg, hid behind it, watched from the side as Captain Hook went on by, you know, to the other way. What she needed in that moment was to know that dad's still here. You're going to be okay. That person with the hook is not going to kill you. Okay? In her four-year-old mind, right, what she felt was incredibly real. And what she needed in that moment was the assurance that it's going to be okay. If you're here today and you're in one of those places of grief and you feel like God's a million miles away, he has you here today. You're watching today. You're listening today. Because what God wants to do is he wants to put his hand on you and he wants to bring you close and let you know that you're not alone. You're going to make it. You're going to get through this. God hasn't abandoned you in that grief, in that loss. And that leads to another way that God comforts us. Here's the second way. How does God comfort us when we have broken hearts? The second one is God grieves with us. Not only is he with us, but he actually steps into the pain and into the grief with us. This is another one of the unique things about Christianity that sets it apart from almost all other world religions. Other world religions don't have gods that step into the pain with them, that say, I will experience that with you. I will be with you in that place, in that dark time. We have a God that understands this. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered great physical pain. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? It was the first moment and the only moment in the existence of the Trinity, which we talked about. Remember our last series in the Creed? We talked about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that are so uniquely one that it can't be undone. But you know what happened on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was that moment and the only moment that Jesus felt what it was like to be separated from God the Father. And so we, Jesus understands pain. God understands having to turn his back for a moment on his son to become sin so that we could be forgiven. This is unique to Christianity, friends. This is unique to our faith, that we have a God who steps into our pain and into our struggle. He empathizes and mourns with us. We see this ability in Jesus when his friend Lazarus dies. Uh, there's a story in John chapter 11 Lazarus and his family were great friends of Jesus, supporters of Jesus and his disciples and, and Jesus' ministry. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And if you were personal friends with the guy going around Chula Vista and healing everybody, if you got sick or your brother or sister got sick, what would you do? You would text him and go, hey, could you come over? Right? Because, I mean, this is the dude that heals people. 
And so they couldn't text or call, but they sent somebody to go where Jesus was and say, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. In other words, you're the healer. You come heal him. And then Jesus looked at his disciples and he was ministering and teaching. And he goes, we'll go there in a couple days. Well, by the time Jesus shows up to Lazarus' house, he's been dead for a few days. Jesus didn't make it on time. Here's what it says. John eleven thirty three 35 Jesus saw her. That's Mary, Lazarus' sister. Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping. And he saw how the people with her were weeping. Let me just pause there. Have you ever gone into a house? Have you ever been with people in a hospital room? Or all the friends in a waiting room right after somebody has died? As a pastor, I've stepped into that space, I don't know, probably hundreds of times. Jesus steps into that. Everybody is heartbroken, grieving. And when he did, what does it say? His heart was touched. Not, hey, you suck it up. Come on, people, what's wrong with you? The Savior's here. No, no, no. His heart was touched. Let's keep reading. What does it say? And he what? He was deeply moved. He stepped into that moment with them. And then the shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Some of you have never thought you could memorize a Bible verse. This is it. Ready? Jesus wept. Let's all say that out loud together on three. One, two, three. Jesus wept, found in John eleven thirty five. 35. One more time. Jesus wept. Where is it found? You just memorized the Bible. You're amazing, right? This is the shortest verse. Jesus wept. In other words, he burst into tears. He himself grieved the pain that his friends felt at the loss of their brother, of their friend. And then when Jesus cried, this is awesome. Look what it says. In other words, everybody else sees Jesus cry and they're like, whoa, see how much he loved him? In other words, look how much Jesus loved Lazarus, the people said. Here's the last part of that is so powerful. Here's why. Grief is natural because it's evidence of love. I mean, if you don't grieve, did you ever really love? The only people that don't grieve are hard-hearted, apathetic people. Because why does it matter if your neighbor died? You didn't know him. You don't care about him. It doesn't really matter. Right? You grieve because you love because love is lost. Jesus grieved because he loved. And the Bible teaches that God is love. So what is not a God who loves, but what is a God who is love going to do? He's going to step into your pain and he is going to grieve with you. This is, this is what God does. He is with you and with us in our grief. That leads to the next way. God comforts our broken hearts. Write this down. How else does God comfort our broken hearts? Well, God gives us a church family for support. You were never meant to go through life or faith on your own. We say this all the time around here, that following Jesus is a personal decision that you must make. All right? Every millennial, uh, Gen Y, every teenager, look and listen, following Jesus is a personal decision you must make. 
parents can't make it for you, they can lead you towards it. They can do things to put you in an environment where you can encounter and experience God's love and hear the truth of the gospel. That's why they make you go to church, okay? Which, by the way, parents, that's what good parents do, all right? Some of you are like, I don't know if I want to make my kid go to church. Do you make him go to school? Like, I mean, if you give him the option in fifth grade to go, yeah, you can go today or not, then by all means, give him the option not to show up here, okay? But if you make him go to school, I'm going to tell you, you might say, hey, this is just what we do, right? Anyway, that wasn't in the sermon. That's just a free parenting tip <laughs> for you, all right? Um, but all the parents that had to make their kids go this morning are like, see, see, right? Their kids are like, shut up. Hey, my, I don't know why, what I was talking about. What was I saying? Oh, the church family for support, right? Like, like God, like you personal decision to follow Jesus, that's on you. But making it through faith, that's on us. Right? You choose to follow Jesus, but you don't follow Jesus alone. Nobody follows Jesus alone. You can't make it. God gives you a church family for support. This is, the church is not, to, it's not meant to be a service you slip in and slip out of. It's meant to be a community that you're a part of. And this is what I've experienced in the church during my 18 plus years in this church with my wife and I through all these different stages that we've gone through. And we've experienced church as family, not because I'm a pastor here. We've experienced church as family because we've taken the time in our lives and our schedules and we've taken the initiative at different seasons of our life to join or host growth groups. That's how we've experienced church as a family. We've said, yeah, there, there's, there's other things we could do every Sunday night, but you know what? Let's get together with other couples that have kids in similar life stages and let's grow together in our relationship with Christ and our friendship with one another. And in doing that, whether it's in men's groups I've been in or, or couples groups or women's groups my wife has been in, here's what I can tell you we've experienced. We've experienced both the joys of life and the sorrows of life together. We've had friends in our group get diagnosis that it's cancer. And we've gone to their houses and prayed and cried together before they started chemo. We, we've shared the, the challenges and struggles of parenting and the challenges and struggles of marriage and stages of life. And we've grieved the losses of some marriages that didn't make it. We've grieved the losses together of parents that have left too early. We've also shared the joys. We've celebrated birthdays and holidays and anniversaries and accomplishments of our kids' achievements. It's been a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. And let me just tell you, if all you do is slip into a service, sit in a row and slip out of that row, you're missing what the church is really supposed to be. Look at what Romans chapter 12 says. The apostle Paul writes the entire chapter about the church, and here's what he says. Even though we are many individuals, Christ makes us, what's the next two words? Say it out loud. One body. Even though we're many, we're one body, the church, and individuals who are connected to each other. And so be devoted to each other, like a, next two words, Loving family, not the jacked up family we all grew up in. All right, we're supposed to be better than that. Be happy with those who are happy and be sad with those who are what? 
In other words, go on the journey of life together. This is what we are supposed to do. So here's my challenge to you, church, okay? My challenge is this. Coming out of this COVID season, let me just ask you this. Do you have a reentry plan? Some of you have started. Others of you haven't, and that's okay. But here's what I mean. Like, re-enter into relationships. What COVID has done, it has isolated all of us more than any other time in any of our individual lives. And if we do not have an intentional plan to go, what am I going to do to step back into relationships? I can tell you, you probably won't. You'll step back into some things in measure, but I want you to step back into relationships. And so this August, we're going to relaunch growth groups again. And this August, will you take a step into relationships? Will you take a step into a ministry team and serve alongside other people? Will you be a part of the family that is the church? It's one of the ways God helps us and encourages us in our journey of grief. The next way God comforts us, let me give you these last ones real quick, uh, our broken hearts, is God uses grief to help us grow. God actually uses grief to help us grow. Let me be clear. God doesn't cause all of our pain. He's he's not the one that, you know, intentionally places grief and hardship in front of us, but he promises to always use our pain for good if we'll let him. If we'll process that pain in helpful ways, not harmful ways. You know, there's harmful ways to handle grief. What, What are some of those? What are some harmful ways to handle grief? Isolation would be one. That's a harmful way to handle grief. Uh, alcohol would be another one. We numb the pain, right? We're gonna we're gonna drink it away. We're gonna we're gonna you know self medicate it away. Those would be harmful ways. Acting it out, you know, just like I'm so angry that now everybody's going to feel that anger. Stuffing it down. Those are harmful ways. God says. You're grieving. It's real. Acknowledge it, own it, and he will meet us in that place, and he will heal it if we will let him, and he will use it to help us grow. Look at what it says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James is writing to an early church that is facing persecution, which is just a little side note. By the way, that's coming. Have you, ever, have you noticed in culture that, that the world is a little more aggressive towards the church than it ever has been in any of our lifetimes? Have you noticed that things that we believe as Jesus people and hold, and yet we can, we can disagree with people, yet we have to act in love, that the fact we disagree is now be called, being called hostile in some places, and we want to go, oh my God, what are we going to do? Guess what? The church has done this multiple times over the last couple thousand years where they've been persecuted because they held to certain beliefs as Jesus people and in the middle of being persecuted because they believe, and you think you have a hard time because that person blocked you on Facebook. (laughs) These people were being tortured in public streets and hung upside down on crosses and lit on fire in the Roman Colosseum because of Jesus. I think they had a little worse than you and me. But all that said, in the middle of that persecution, look at what James writes to these Jesus people that were being persecuted because of what they believed. Look what it says. He says, don't run from tests and hardships, brothers and sisters. As difficult as they are, you will ultimately find joy in them. 
If you embrace them, your faith will blossom under pressure and teach you true patience as you endure. And true patience brought on by endurance will equip you to complete the long journey and to cross the finish line, mature, complete, and wanting nothing. What's the finish line? The finish line is someday all of us standing in front of God and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome. You get in. That's the, that's the finish line. And what James is letting us know here is that God has goals and perspectives that are bigger than ours. God says, I'm getting you ready for all eternity. He's reminding us that God is most interested in our character, in who we are becoming. He's way more interested in that than he is our comfort. And so what does that mean? That means God is going to allow hard things to happen because sometimes it takes hard things for us to grow. Let me ask you a question. Think about your own life right now. When are the moments in your life or in your profession, in your marriage, in your relationships that you feel like you grew the most as a person? When did your marriage go from here to here? When did you as an individual go from somebody that maybe lacked confidence, struggled, you know, like, like to somebody that like, I know who I am and, and what I'm supposed to do. Here's what I'll bet. I'll bet that for 99% of us, the times in our life that we grew the most were immediately after some of the greatest struggles, right? right? The times that our marriage grew was after we acknowledged the pain and the difficulty and the hurt and we owned it and we did the tough work to make it better, right? Like, like this, this is how God works. This is what he wants to do in us. If you will let God into your grief, I promise he will grow you through it. God will help you love him in deeper ways. You'll know yourself better. You'll grow in your willingness to let others in and help you. God will always use it if you'll release it and let him heal it. Two more quick ways. How does God comfort our broken hearts? God gives us the hope of heaven. God gives us the hope of heaven. The great hope we have as Jesus people when someone we love faces death or dies is that we know this is not all there is. That this is really just the warm-up act for all of eternity. I mean, just think about the amount of time that we're all going to spend on this earth. The time that we get this, time, this round, it's relatively pretty small, right? I mean, let, let's all be honest. 80, 90, some of us, maybe 100. Yeah, no, I'd be lucky to get 74, okay? Um, truth, no man in my family has ever lived past 74 years old. Now, my dad's the first one that wasn't, you know, like an alcoholic smoker. So he's got a chance to get there, but uh, he's changed the path of our Grogan Irish family, all right? And I'm grateful for that. Uh, so, but I mean, let's be honest, like we're not going to, I mean, at best, right? What are we? You know what the Bible says we are? A mist, a vapor, a moment in time. That's what we are here. But think about the millions and millions and millions of years for all eternity in heaven. And when Christ comes again, redeems and restores all things, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we get to experience life here on this planet as God originally intended it to be, 
Like that's a, that's a different perspective. And when we have that perspective, it helps us in our grief. This is what Paul's teaching the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Here's what he writes to these first Christians. He says, hey, and now, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to know what happens to Christians, to a Christian when he dies, so that when it happens, you will not be full of sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, here's the thing. If you are not a Christian and your worldview tells you that this life on this planet, this one shot, this moment is all you got, I can't imagine the finality of grief that would come. Because this is it. Your worldview tells you you'll never see them again. You'll, You'll never enjoy them again. But if you're a Christian, we know this isn't the end. You see, Christians are the ultimate realist. That's really what we are. We're the ultimate realist. We're the ultimate realist that say this world is broken. It is not as it originally intended to be. We believe that the brokenness in this world is real. The brokenness in us is real. We don't try to shine it. We don't try to sugarcoat it. We own it. And we also believe that Jesus is real. And he comes to forgive our sin and reconnect us with God. And we believe that heaven is real. And because we say yes to Jesus, we can all, you know, be promised and guaranteed heaven. And we believe that the second coming of Jesus is real. We're crazy enough to believe this stuff. That Jesus is coming again and he's going to redeem and restore all things. And the ultimate place for Jesus' people isn't just up there somewhere, wherever that is. But God's going to make this new heaven and this new earth. And we're going to live with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Like that, we believe this stuff. And when you believe that stuff, yes, we grieve because they're not here with us. Because we miss and we love We don't grieve without hope. We don't grieve without hope because we know this isn't all there is. We know that we're going to see those friends, those parents, those sons, those daughters, those friends, those spouses again. And then here's the last way God comforts us is God uses our pain to help others. Write that in there. God uses our pain to help others others. God doesn't want to waste your hurt. If you'll let him heal it, he'll use it to even help others. Who's the best person to help somebody going through the pain of a divorce? Somebody who's already been through the pain of a divorce, but they've been healed, right? Not somebody who's been through the pain of divorce and they're still jaded. You don't want help from that person, right? They're like, I know what you need. I'm taking you to the club tonight and you're getting a new man. No! That is not the person, okay? No, no, no. You need the person that goes, no, no, no. You you need nobody right now but Jesus. Let him heal your heart. Let's get whole. Let's get good with kind of where this, like that's what you need. Who's the best person to help a family that just realizes now that they're going to go on a journey with a special needs child? Parents who've already been on that journey with a special needs child right? I mean, who's the best person to help somebody through an addiction that's trying to get free of drugs or alcohol? Somebody that is free from that addiction of drugs and alcohol. They're healed. They're recovered. 
This is the beauty of the church. And as a pastor, I have a front row seat to see this. 2 Corinthians 1.4, I've watched it lived out in this community for years and decades. Here's what it says. In fact, since this is the last verse, let's read this one out, together as, out loud together as well. Can we do that? 2 Corinthians 1.4, last verse. Here's what it says. Everybody out loud, ready, begin. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. There can be power in our pain. Good can come from our grief if we'll let God heal it and use it. I mean, think about it. Who's the best person to help someone through a divorce? Somebody that's been through a divorce and experienced the healing and the grace of God. Who's the best people to help a family through the challenges of raising a special needs child? A family that has a special needs child that, that, that's walked that journey, that's experienced God's goodness and grace. That's who. Who's the best person to help someone struggling through an addiction? Somebody that's been through that addiction and been healed and is in recovery. And you know what? I have the privilege as a pastor of watching that play out in a beautiful way in this community over the last 18 plus years that I've been here. I mean, I've watched women who for so long hid in guilt and shame because of an abortion, and I've watched them experience the goodness and the grace and the healing of God, and then say, you know what, I want to start a support group and a recovery group that would help other women to be able to experience the same grace and freedom that I have experienced in Christ. I've watched people that struggled with uh, drug addictions for years that now are set free that have said, you know what, I want to help other people. And they step into recovery programs and have said, I want to help people experience the freedom that is found in Christ. I've watched parents in our church that through accidents tragically lost sons and daughters that have stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to have a grief recovery group, support group, and I'm going to help others experience the healing and just be with them through that journey of loss. Very often our greatest pain, if we'll let God heal it, will become our greatest ministry. Would you stand with me? Everybody inside, everybody outside, uh, everybody at home, don't go get the extra coffee yet. Just hang with us. I want to ask you a couple questions just before we go into uh, one last worship song. And uh, here's a couple of questions I want you to consider as we close today. Number one, will you let God into your grief and pain? If you're somebody and you're here today and you would just look back at the last year, year and a half, and you would say there's a loss or there's multiple losses, here's what I want to ask you. Instead of hiding, instead of holding on to it, would you let God into it? Would, would you not let your pain push God away? But would you let him right into the middle of that place with you? Will you let the church help you through it? We're starting a bunch of support recovery groups. If you want to find out about them over the summer, they're starting, I think, many of them this coming week. A grief support, divorce support, all sorts of recovery groups. If you're interested, stop by the Next Right Step Center or go online to be able to find those. Will you let other people into your grief, into your pain? And then will you help others by using your story? Will you let God take that broken thing and ultimately make it beautiful? Will you let that tragedy be a trophy of God's grace? 
This next song we're going to sing, the last song, and then we're going to dismiss after this. The song is called Graves into Gardens, and that's what it speaks of, that God takes these often broken, dead areas of our life, and if we let him in it, if we let him heal it, he restores it, and he brings something beautiful from it, and that's my prayer for you as we sing this today. And so let me pray for us. And then uh, we're going to sing this song. I want to remind you, if you're here today and you need prayer when we dismiss after this song, we always have a team of people that are down front, leaders in our church, that would love to pray for you. If you'd like to experience communion as part of your worship today, when we dismiss, you can come forward and receive communion that way as well. Uh, And then I hope you'll hang out and congratulate our graduates out on the patio afterwards. But here's what I know. God's spirit is here. He wants you to believe that that grief, that grave can turn into a beautiful garden today. And so would you let him in as we worship and as we sing this song together? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your grace that is here, that is present. I thank you that you don't ask us to go through the brokenness of our world, this journey of life alone, but you give us others. You give us your spirit You give us a church family to journey with us. And I pray for those that are broken in spirit today, that are brokenhearted, that are grieving a loss in their life. Would you be close to them, God? Would they feel your presence, not just in the moment of this song, but in every moment this week? Would your grace be more than enough for them? God, help us be the kind of church that your word talks about one that loves one another well, one that gives grace to one another, journeys with one another. God, would you take the graves of our life and turn them into beautiful gardens, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this together.